Beloved, there is a phrase that I trust most of you are quite familiar with. Uh, depending upon the context and the intended recipient, it is a full of wisdom and very well-aimed. And I was thinking of this phrase much this week in the context of the passage that we have before us here this morning and with myself as the intended recipient. I kept repeating this to myself in my studies on this great text that we have before us. And the phrase that I was saying to myself is, keep it simple, stupid. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Our passage this morning are verses 1 through 11. This is an incredibly complex passage. It's one of, if not the most complicated passage in the New Testament. It is certainly the most complicated passage I've studied or preached through in the context of the grammar, the tenses, the subjects, the players are all interwoven throughout the entire 11 verses. Uh, from just going verse by verse, it would be impossible to have a crisp, tidy, straightforward outline just saying point one are the first three verses, verses four through six is the next point. Because even as we look at this, again, all these themes, all these topics are interwoven through the whole passage. I don't remember ever studying a passage before where every single commentator, every single pastor had a completely different outline for the passage. Now, this is, again, an incredibly and extraordinarily complex passage with one very simple, very straightforward, very clear message, very clear theme, rest, the rest of God. The exhortation to be diligent as the people of God, to enter the rest of God that has been prepared for you by God beforehand. It has been prepared by God from the beginning for the people of God. Beloved, hear the word of God as I read this morning. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1. The author writes, Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he, he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day. Today saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his." Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, beloved, we understand this. We are pilgrims in progress. We are pilgrims on a journey, journeying to a promised prize. And the prize promised by God for the people of God to the children of God is eternal rest. In these 11 verses, the author refers to rest 12 times. There's physical rest, territorial rest. There is cosmological rest, God rest, divine rest. There is spiritual rest, eternal rest, ultimate rest, true rest, final rest. We see in this passage that for the daughter of God, for the son of God, there is rest already achieved and there is rest not yet attained. There's an already not yet aspect of it. 
when we look at the subjects, we see rest from the vantage point, as we would go through the text, from the first generation of Israel out of the exodus that was condemned in the wandering of the wilderness. We see rest from the vantage point of the sovereign creator God of the universe. We see briefly rest from the second generation of Israel that came out of the wilderness into the promised land. We see rest from the vantage point of the original Jewish believers and for you and I as well, and even the rest for all of God's redeemed for all time. Now, beloved, to help us track through this, we'll look at four rests to kind of track us through this. There's territorial rest, cosmological rest, spiritual rest, and eternal rest. As I indicated before, these are all kind of interwoven through the entire passage, but that's the flow as we go through our sermon. And one other aspect, one other observation that we make here that will help us take in as good students of the word, the riches of what God intends here is there are two exhortations. There's an exhortation in verse 1 and then one at the end in verse 11. God brackets this great treatise on his rest with an exhortation that we would fear lest we fall and then in verse 11 so that we would work so as to win, so as to win the prize of the eternal rest of God. First, Let's look at the territorial rest that we are introduced to in verses 1 through the beginning of verse 3. So the territorial rest, the physical rest that I'm talking about here is rest from the vantage point of the first generation of Israel out of the exodus through the wilderness. They were the people that we had seen back in chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. The example, the sad, tragic example of their unbelief and their disobedience, which has served as an example for us. And even the territorial rest, the land rest, this goes all the way back to when God called Abram, when Abram was an idol-worshiping pagan in the land of Ur, and God called Abram out of Ur and set his seal upon Abram. In Genesis chapter 12, in the first few verses, God gave a promise to Abraham that there would be a land that he would give to him and to his people. And the physical and territorial rest is precisely what he is talking about here. And again, what we see in verse 1, there is an exhortation so that we would fear lest we fall. In fact, that's how it begins. Look at verse 1. He says, therefore, let us fear. And actually, in the original Greek, the let us fear is right there at the beginning, phobeomai, from which we get the English word phobia. He says, let us fear, therefore. The author thrusts that right at the beginning by way of emphasis to let us know that this is continuing this second great warning passage that God gives us in Hebrews, which began back in chapter 3, verse 7. Now, the fear that he's talking about here, is he talking about a fear of believers or a fear of unbelievers? And actually, it is a both and, not an either or. To be sure, there is the element of the fear of the terror of the ungodly who still carry the guilt of sin because they're not in Christ. But this is also the godly, the solemn godly fear of the believer which produces soberness and a solemn recognition and acknowledgement of God's holiness and his awesomeness, his majesty. This is certainly the courageous godly fear of a son or daughter of God, which fears nothing except God himself. He says, therefore, let us fear. What are we to fear? Lest while a promise remains of entering his rest. So that's the first of these 12 references to rest that we see in these 11 verses. And one point we want to bring out here immediately is the promise remains. So when we remember what God told us back in chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, of the horrible failure of the dismal sin of the nation of Israel in the wilderness, that means that God's promise of rest didn't die in the desert with that nation. God's good word is not decaying in the dust of the desert like the 600,000 corpses that were decaying there as a way of example for us. Also, 
When he says lest, this continues this theme of warning back in chapter 2, verse 1. The author there said, lest we drift away from the truth we have heard. Chapter 3, verse 12, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. Now here in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, lest any one of you should seem to have come short of it. Have come short of it. The word translated come, is, come short of it there is taken from the athletic world. It describes someone who fell behind in a race or someone who didn't reach the finish line, didn't reach the goal, and therefore is ineligible, will not win the prize. And the point of all these warning passages of chapter 2, verse 1, 3, 12, and 4, 1 here, these lest this be the case, is for you and I to press on, to strive forward. He gives further justification to this exhortation in verse 2. He says, for indeed... We have had good news preached to us. We've had the gospel preached to us, just as they also. Now, when we look at this here, when he says we, the author includes himself. He, the author of Hebrews, and his immediate audience, these Jewish believers, and you and me as well, we're included in that we. But as good students of the word, we want to ask the question, well, we see the pronoun they at the end. So who is to whom is they referring here? And what we want to do is we want to go back and say, well, who was before this? And it's the law of nearest antecedent. For example, we can think of the man that complained to his friend, said, you know, my, my son really doesn't like fish. What, what would be a good replacement? And his friend responded, why don't you try a cat? Cats like fish. You see, he missed the point. It wasn't a replacement for the son. It was a replacement for fish is what he was talking about. So what we do here, that's the law of neurosanthesis. So what we do here is the they goes back to what the group was that was just before, which is, again, that first generation of Israel out of the Exodus. But what's fascinating is we know that the author, the author of Hebrews was a second generation believer. He was preached to, he had the gospel, the good news preached to him by some apostolic witness. And he includes himself with the audience. And you and I are included in that as well. But what's fascinating here is the author says that generation of Israel in the wilderness had the gospel preached to them. And this is the very word that talks about gospel. For example, when Jesus Christ began his public ministry preaching in the synagogue in Nazareth. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus said this. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he, God, anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. So the very same word translated there as preach the gospel is the good news that we understand is preached to you and me today that was preached to the author of Hebrews and the audience, but also the nation of Israel. And beloved, the point here is this. All the way back after the fall, when God was pouring out his judgment and declaring his judgment to Adam and Eve, the gospel was preached to Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3, verse 15, in the midst of his words of judgment, God told Adam that in Eve that he will crush the head of the evil one. That was the proto-euangelion, the first gospel. So, Adam and Eve had the gospel preached in the garden. Again, Israel had the gospel preached at Sinai and in the wilderness. And this Jewish audience, you and I have the gospel preached today. And what's fascinating is that here the author doesn't note any difference or any distinction between the good news and the gospel that was heard by the Old Testament saint or the New Testament saint. Now, we do know that there are distinctions and differences, but it is still the good news, it is still the gospel. Those who were saved before Christ, they were saved by what he would do. We on this side of the cross are saved by what he has already done. And certainly we have a fuller picture and a greater understanding, but mark this, both the old covenant believer and the new covenant believer are saved in the same way, by faith alone, in the promise of God. And in fact, Paul, for example, uses Abraham in Romans chapter 4 as an example of an Old Testament saint that was saved and justified by faith, by belief. James, the half-brother of Jesus in James chapter 2, 
also used Abraham as an example of an Old Testament believer that was justified and saved by faith. So they had heard the good news. They had heard the gospel. Look at the rest of verse 2. But, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So in fact, this helps us understand that when the author here says, we have heard the good news, he wasn't even talking about just the believers among those Jewish people, but even the unbelievers, anyone, believer or unbeliever, that has heard the good news is included in this list. And what he's saying here is the predominant portion of that generation, of that wilderness generation of Israel, had uncircumcised hearts. They had heard the news, but they did not believe it. They did not trust it. I think uh, David has been teaching in one of our Bible Hour classes about the aspects of faith, the notitia, the ascensus, the fiducia, the notitia, the notification, the information that is the content of the good news. And then the ascensus, the agreement, there's a mental agreement saying, yes, I believe this is true, but there's an element of not just hearing it and not just agreeing with it, but trusting it. That's the fiducia. That's the appropriation of the faith. And what the author is saying here is he's making it sure, making certain that you and I, that anyone that would read this or hear this, that it's not merely hearing by itself that brings salvation. It's the appropriation by faith of the content of the good news. A Example from the, an example from the New Testament could be the church in Thessalonica, the mature church of the Thessalonians. Now, Paul wrote to the church, and out of the joy that he was bringing to them in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, speaking on behalf of himself and the other leaders, the apostle Paul told the church, we constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Now watch this. Which also performs its work in you who believe. End quote. Beloved, that's why, for example, in our men's big breakfast, when we have our godly men, every men's big breakfast will have a man from Santan Bible Church get up and give a testimony of how God saved them. And to be sure, when our men give those testimonies in the big breakfast, they talk about the past, what their life was like before God saved them. They talk about how God saved them, but it doesn't stop there. There's always the most powerful, in one sense, element of this is what God is doing in my life today in faith and obedience. And that is what the author is bringing out here in this great exhortation. And I like what Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, said. He said, a little faith will bring your soul into heaven, but a great faith will bring heaven down to your soul. What a true statement that is. We continue verse 3 here, Hebrews 4. He gives further clarification, justification. He says, for we who have believed. Now the we here is restricted to those who have believed. We who have believed enter that rest. And this is a great contrast. The way he finished what we have as chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 19, they that generation of unbelievers and disobedient people in Israel in the wilderness, they were not able to enter because of unbelief. But now we who have believed enter that rest. Also notice this, the author here in verse 3 doesn't say we will enter that rest in the future. He says we who have believed in the past enter that rest in the present. There is an already aspect. We have already in Christ entered into this rest that God has promised. And even the second exhortation in verse 11, it's a present command. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest for the prize of eternal rest. Verse 3, he Quotes again the Old Testament. Just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is third out of four quotations from Psalm 95, verse 11. You may remember back in chapter 3, Hebrews, verses 7 through 11, he had a long extended quote from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. Twice he referenced verse 11, they shall not enter into my rest. This is the third time he'll quote it again in verse 
5. They shall not enter my rest. The situation was, in reference to the example of that nation, they were like a people that studied a menu diligently, but were dying of starvation because they never ate. They were like a group of people that maybe memorized the flight schedule and the flight patterns, but they never went anywhere. And what the author is saying here, it's better to be a pagan with no interest than to be a casual, almost believer, studying the menu and memorizing the flight patterns, but never eating, never taking the journey. What the author says here is, beware. To listen to the gospel while remaining destitute of faith is to fall short of God's promised rest. So, That nation, that first generation out of the Exodus had the good news preached to them. We have the good news preached to them. Even as you hear this sermon here this morning, you have the good news preached. They disobeyed their revelation. The question, dear friend, dear brother or sister is, what are you doing? What will you do? How will you handle your revelation? And Beloved, dear friend, come to the point where your heart is broken, your knees collapsed, so that you can push forward, so that you can strive forward, so that you can finish the race and win the prize. That's, at a high level, the territorial rest. Now we move to the cosmological rest in the latter part of verse 3 through verse Five. And the point here is always, from even the original promise to Abraham through the nation of Israel... The rest of God is something far bigger than merely rest in the promised land. The land that God promised the nation was more than just a piece of territory. It was a pointer to God's promise and his plan from the beginning to restore creation after the fall. So this cosmological rest is a creation rest. It's a divine rest. It's God's rest. He defines it, God defines it in himself, and he defines it for himself. In a sense, God says, this is the rest I enjoy, and this is the rest I bestow. Verse 3 at the end, we read, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and that he has thus said somewhere, I'm quite certain that this author knew precisely where it was. They, now, we know that's Genesis 2, verse 2. They didn't have the chapter divisions or the verse divisions. That those weren't added till around 1500 or 1600 to our benefit. But to be sure, the author knew precisely where that was said. And in fact, the author was very confident that his original audience of well-learned and well-educated Jewish believers, well-learned in the Word of God, also knew where it was at. But he just does this kind of vague reference because he's focusing on the message. And we saw something similar even back in chapter 2, verse 6, where the author there said, one has testified somewhere saying, to bring out the weight of it. But he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Beloved, this Genesis 2, verse 2, rest of God is not a rest of inactivity. It's a rest from the completion of a task. It's rest after the accomplishment of a divine, perfect purpose. It's a rest of satisfaction, a rest of enjoyment, a rest of delight. God ceased from his creative activity. So in the same way that this is not a rest of inactivity on the part of God, it's certainly not intended to be a gateway to idleness for you and for me. In John 5, verse 17, Jesus said, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. So the Father did rest from his work, and in fact, he is still resting from that work of creation, but to be sure, he is actively upholding and maintaining the universe. Also, you may know when we, even when I read the public reading before of Genesis 1, verse 23 through chapter 2, verse 3, on each of the first days of creation, they are marked, their ending of the first 24-hour day is marked by the words evening and morning. 
The fifth day, evening and morning. The sixth day, evening and morning. But when you look at the seventh day, in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, there's no terminus, there's no ending, there's no evening or morning. And the point there is the seventh day of God's rest from creation is continuing. It's still occurring on the part of God ceasing from his creative activity. And it's also still available to the man or woman. And we can understand that God is satisfied, God enjoys his creation. The great artist of the universe is delighting in his masterpiece. And he will delight perfectly, completely when we're all brought together and transformed from glory to glory into his presence. He says, from the foundation of the world. In other words, before the wilderness wanderings, all the way back to creation itself. The point here is, beloved, dear friend, the rest of God has been God's plan and purpose from the beginning. This is also God's intention and purpose for man. In Hebrews 2, we saw the author there quote from Psalm 8, where God, where God takes the author to remind us of God's original intent and purpose in the dignity and the rule of man and the noble way in which God intends for man to exercise rule over God's creation, even above angels. In the same way here, the author is bringing home to us that God's original plan and purpose was rest. But because of sin, because of the fall, this rest has completely, totally inseparably eluded man's grasp since then, except for Christ. Gerhardus Voss wrote in his book, Biblical Theology, Old and New Testaments. He is making this statement in the context of the Sabbath, but he has a final sentence that brings out a great truth about this whole dynamic of God's purpose from the very beginning. This is what Voss wrote. He said, the Sabbath brings this principle of the eschatological structure of history to bear upon the mind of man after a symbolic and typical fashion. It teaches its lesson through the rhythmical succession of six days of labor and one ensuing day of rest in each successive week. Watch this. He says, man is reminded in this way that life is not an aimless existence, that a goal lies beyond. Beloved, the goal, the original plan and purpose was this eternal rest, satisfaction, and joy in the presence of God. And this means that this is indeed good news to the burdened and weary and guilty sinner. Stop your self-effort. Come to the cross. Augustine said in a prayer to God, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. How true. Dear friend, come to the one who gives rest. Come to the Lord of the Sabbath. Come to Jesus Christ. He alone gives true rest. Verse 5 and again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Now, I can be pretty thick-headed, and it sometimes takes me the repetition again and again and again. And that's why the author here four times, twice in chapter 3, now twice here in chapter 4, verses 3 and 5, he repeats this warning. He really wants us to make sure we don't miss this solemn warning that God originally gave through David back in Psalm 95. Both David to his audience, this author to his audience, God to all of us here would want us to understand that getting into the kingdom of God, getting into being adopted into the family of God, achieving the prize of eternal rest is not the automatic end of every man. It requires belief. It requires trust. Alistair Begg was describing the state of mankind in sin. And Beg, Pastor Begg said this, whatever you might say about humanity, it's not tranquility that represents it. It's not restfulness that represents it. What he says is that the dust of death is settled upon all of humanity and as such, man cannot enjoy this rest. It 
demands and requires a very new creation. Old things must pass away. New things must come. And beloved, what we see here in the seminal passage in Hebrews is that God established the principle of physical rest by creation. And it is by redemption that he establishes the possibility of spiritual rest. So we move from the territorial rest to the cosmological rest. Thirdly, to the spiritual rest in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, the author says, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. So again, the promise remains. Since the seventh day of creation, dear friend, the opportunity to join God in his rest remains. Verse 6, he continues, And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. Now, we know back in verse 19 of chapter 3 that the author summarized the state of the sin of the nation by unbelief. But here he summarizes it by disobedience. The point is their unbelief grew into disobedience. Both their hearts and their hands were willfully opposed to God and his word. We could understand it this way. Unbelief, the repeated hearing of the good news and not letting that seed penetrate, that truth penetrate the heart. It hardens and, as a result, neglectors become rejectors. Those who would just simply neglect God's demand on their life begin to more and more aggressively, vehemently reject God's demand on their life. And the example that he gives us here back in chapter 3 is that they were without excuse. They had heard the good news and they chose to disobey. They were Sons of disobedience, we could say. They never met a law they couldn't break. They never met a morality they couldn't disdain or a commandment or a demand from God that they couldn't violate. That's the example. But what the author wants us to understand is God is still in control. And God rules. And in his grace and mercy, God overrules. Verse 7, he says, the author says, he again, God again, fixes a certain day. This word fixes, it's a powerful word talking about the sovereign plan and intent of God. It's used in the New Testament speaking of Jesus, of the man Jesus. For example, in Luke 22, verse 22, Jesus said, The Son of Man is going as it has been determined, as it has been fixed. Acts 2, verse 23 This man was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, by the predetermined, fixed, determined plan of God. Acts 10, verse 42, still speaking of Christ. This is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. So this incredible word that we see fixed here in Hebrews is used of Christ, and it's used here in verse 7 of you and me, and it's also used of man in Acts 17, verse 26. The apostle Paul, when he was preaching his great sermon on Mars Hill to the Stoic Epicurean philosophers, in Acts 17, verse 26, Paul said, God made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined having fixed their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So, beloved, again, the sin of man is great, but God is sovereign above even the sin of man. And at times his providence may seem frustrated, turned and twisted, but the providence good plan of God always ultimately and finally accomplishes all that God purposes for it because God rules and he overrules. Still here in verse 7, we get the author bringing out this urgency. Today, saying through David after so long a time, just has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Another quote from Psalm 95, 7 through 8, 7 and verse 8. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The same Psalm was quoted back in chapter 3, verse 7, and there it was attributed to the Holy Spirit is saying. Here, David is saying. This is a reminder of the divine inspiration of the Word of God. Who wrote Psalm 95? Did David write it? Did the Holy Spirit write it? 
And the answer is, of course, yes. It was written by David and it was written by the Holy Spirit. But there is an urgency today, today. The author wants his original audience to understand that those words written by David were just as applicable to them as it was a thousand years before when David wrote it. As it was to David's generation some 400 years after Moses. And beloved, dear friend, these words, this good news is just as applicable, just as binding, and just as hope-bearing, hopeful as it was to the original audience. Friend, only one thing can satisfy the restlessness in the human soul. The only one thing can satisfy your restlessness, and that is the rest of God. And this is at the heartbeat of even the message of Jesus Christ himself. Do you remember the beautiful words of Jesus, Matthew 11, verses 28, 29? He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. The spiritual rest. Dear friend, as part of this urgency today, today, six times in Hebrews 3, 7 through 19, you see the word today. Twice here in verse 7. Friend, you cannot presume upon tomorrow. Today may be the only day you have left. But, and as long as you have today, if tomorrow becomes today and the day after becomes another today, you have an invitation to believe. You have an invitation to the prize of eternal rest. So there is territorial rest, cosmological rest, spiritual rest. There is, fourth and finally, eternal rest. Rest. And again, these are all interwoven through this entire passage. But we focus in verses 8 through 11 on the eternal rest. And by way of anticipation, the second exhortation in verse 11, the author tells us that there is a price to pay to win the prize. J.C. Ryle said, a religion that costs nothing is worth nothing. And he was right. Back in verse 1, we were exhorted, let us fear lest we fall. In verse 11, we will be exhorted, let us work so we may win. Now, what we see in verse 8, we read the words, For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Now, we might scratch our head and say, wait, I, I thought... All of this from chapter 3, verse 7 and 4, this is a comparison where the author is showing us that Jesus is infinitely superior to Moses. And in fact, most of what we've been reading through so far goes back to Moses. And we know that Moses, through his failure and that first generation of Israel, Moses was unable to lead them into the promised land. But the original Jewish audience, and maybe the student of the Bible even here now today might say, well... But Joshua did lead, Joshua and Caleb, old man Joshua and old man Caleb after the 40 years of wandering did lead the nation, all those who are under the age of 20, into the promised land. So does that mean that the promise has been fulfilled? Was, was that it? And the answer here is no. Moses' failure in the wilderness didn't nullify God's promise, and Joshua's entering into the promised land, didn't fully realize it. He did realize it to a measure. And by the way, in verse 8, when it says Joshua, that's the same, that's the Greek word Jesus. Jesus and Joshua are the same word, the same name in both Hebrew and Greek. But the translators rightly understand he's talking about Joshua here. And the point that the author is bringing out here by leaping from the example of Moses in the first generation to this brief example of Joshua in the second generation is that while they did go into the land, that was merely a shadow of that which was still to come. It was a measure of rest. For example, Joshua 23 verse 1, you read these words, when Yahweh, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side, Joshua was old, advanced in years. So that was a partial fulfillment. That was a partial fulfillment of the territorial of the land promise. 
Which, by the way, beloved, pause there for a second. God is not done with Israel. God will give the entire land promise he gave all the way back to Abram. And all of the details and the boundaries that he tells us even in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 40 through 48. When the nation of Israel, when a majority of the ethnic nation of Israel realized that they crucified their Messiah and they mourned for him as an only son, Zechariah 12, verse 10. But they did have a partial land fulfillment of that rest. But, here's the point, they didn't have the true rest. They didn't have the ultimate rest. Rest. And in fact, what we see is the vast majority of the nation of Israel in that second generation with Joshua had the same uncircumcised hearts of unbelief as did the first generation. Back here, as we go on to verse 9 of Hebrews 4, the author drives home the point that God's idea of rest is wholly and entirely different than man's idea of rest. Verse 9, he says, there remains. Again, there, that promise remains. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. A Sabbath rest. A sabbatismos. It's the only appearance in the entire Bible of this Greek word. A Sabbath rest. A completion. A fulfillment. A full satisfaction and enjoyment. An internal realization of even the Sabbath keeping. All the way back to God's original intent. Even from creation all the way forward into eternity future. And it is for whom? Look at verse 10. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. So, who are we talking about now? I mean, there's, there's the first generation, there's God, there's the second generation, Moses, Joshua. Who, who's the one that he's talking about here? It's you. It's, it's me. It's any man, woman, or child that's trusting in Jesus Christ alone by faith alone. For one who has entered his rest, past tense, has entered in the past means it's immediately realizable. It's an already not yet. And it's not a mere cessation of work or from work. It's a cessation from any kind of work's effort to earn our salvation. It's a complete surrender of human works for salvation. And it's replaced by a complete trust and reliance and belief and faith in the finished work of Christ. Do we believe in a work salvation? Well, we believe in a work salvation if the salvation is based upon the complete finished work of Christ. But no work on the part of man. We are saved again by faith alone and by grace alone apart from the works of the law. That is even what he's bringing out here. This is verse 10. In fact, verse 4 and verse 10 are two great verses that in one sense summarize the entire gospel. And beloved, a spiritual rest remains now for the people of God. And an eternal rest will continue to remain then for, again, the people of God. And by the way, this cessation of work for our own effort for salvation produces a cessation of sin more and more as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ all the way to the point where there will be a complete total cessation of sin and absence from sin the eternal rest the ultimate rest the true rest the heavenly rest that is God's promise to his people in which death Mourning, crying, tears, pain, and sin are forever removed. The apocryphal book of Second Esdras. Uh, when we look at the books of the apocrypha, they're not scripture. That absolutely needs to be maintained and uh, uphold. Uh, but similar to any other extra-biblical work, they can have some good thoughts in them. In the sec book of Second Esdras, you read these words. Paradise is open. The tree of life is planted. The age to come is prepared. Plenty is provided. A city is built. Rest is appointed. Goodness is established and wisdom is perfected beforehand. In a more modern sense, uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman, after he sadly, tragically lost his five-year-old daughter, he wrote the beautiful song, Heaven is the Face. And this is what he wrote and what he sings in that beautiful song, speaking of heaven. He says, in my mind's eye, I can see a place 
where your glory fills every empty space. All the cancer is gone. Every mouth is fed. And there's no one left in the orphan's bed. Every lonely heart finds their one true love. And there's no more goodbye. And no more not enough. And no more enemy. Beloved, seven years and one day ago, my beloved Margie finished her race. She finished her work. She won her prize. It was given to her and prepared beforehand by her Lord and Savior of eternal rest. Yesterday was a seven-year anniversary celebration of her entering into the presence of her Lord and Savior. The book of Estras, Stephen Curtis Chapman, more importantly to the point, God himself tells you and I, Revelation 21, verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now, we could finish there, but God in this section doesn't finish there. He takes these great truths and he finishes and wraps up with his second great exhortation. Let us fear lest we fall, verse 1. Now, verse 11, let us work so we win. And verse 6 is actually the introduction to verse 11. Back in verse 6, you'll see the words, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, now verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Again, let us, the author and the audience, the pulpit and the pew, be diligent, make haste, be eager, make every effort, work hard, strive, remain spiritually firm. F.F. F. Bruce, the commentator, said this. He said, God, and this is in the context of this closing warning, God is not to be trifled with. His word cannot be ignored with impunity, but must be received in faith and obeyed in daily life. God's today has arrived. Let us take his word seriously and make haste to enter his rest, end quote. Beloved, what the author is saying here in verse 11 is we must work at Resting, lest anyone, purpose statement, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. That's an in individual exhortation command, and it's even under the umbrella of the corporate body life that we saw back in chapter 3. God was angry for 40 years with those in the wilderness, and their corpses fell in the wilderness because they rejected the witness, the word, the promise of God. That's the example he gives for us here. Charles Hodge, the Reformed commentator, I like what he had to say balancing this whole dynamic of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Hodge said, saints are preserved not in spite of apostasy falling away. Saints are preserved from apostasy. We could put it this way. Perseverance is the evidence of assurance. Again, perseverance, the perseverance the author talks about here is the evidence of your and my assurance. It is, of course, God's grace alone that brings us into his rest. And he does it by means of his word. And that's the divine sovereignty. We have the human responsibility to work. And, beloved, I will say this one thing in the context of rest. I believe, generally speaking, believers on the side of eternity have the greatest manifestation of the spiritual rest, of the foretaste of this eternal rest, are, generally speaking, the hardest working ones. What is the common, in conclusion, what is the common refrain when, in the Western world, when someone passes away? Unless they're a child molester or some horrific criminal, rest in peace. That's the common refrain regardless of their state. But beloved, rest in peace, the Bible holds out no hope for rest in peace outside of Christ. And a very powerful contrast that God gives us, again in Revelation, in the final book from the Apostle John, in verses 11 through 13, in verse 11 of Revelation 14, he talks about the unbeliever who dies in his or her sin in the context of rest. And then in verses 12 and 13, he talks about the believer who goes home to be with the Lord in the context of rest. Revelation 14, verse 11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, 
and they have no rest day and night. Verse 12, the author says, John pivots, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Verse 13, John says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, watch this, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Beloved, that is the promise. Dear friend, you may be sitting here this morning thinking, there's no hope for me. There's no possibility of rest for me. You don't know how bad, you don't know what I've done. I don't deserve forgiveness. And your friend, on that last point, I would agree with you. You don't deserve forgiveness. I don't deserve forgiveness. None of us, no one deserves forgiveness. There is no one good, no, not one. That's why God calls it grace. Jesus said he came for those who know they're sick, not those who think they are righteous, not those who think they are pious. Dear friend, there is a remaining rest for you if you believe. It doesn't do you a bit of good to hear if you don't believe. How do I enter into the Sabbath rest? By believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, by believing in the Lord of the Sabbath. If you do that, if you place your trust and faith in Christ, God will give you this spiritual rest. He will give you this eternal, true, ultimate, final, heavenly rest. And one last word of urgency. You have no promise that there's a tomorrow. Today doesn't last forever. Today, dear friend, may it be the day of your salvation. May it be the day that when the good news is preached to you, say, that's for me, that's mine. Dear God, pray to God, write it in my heart. Because you realize you may never pass this way again. You may never hear the voice of God again. These same truths may never be conveyed to you again. Therefore, today, Lord, don't let me harden my heart. Make it mine even today. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for the good news. We thank you for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It was delivered to the people of Israel under the old covenant. It's delivered to both Jews and Gentiles, to the church under the new covenant. And it's the same message, sinful man and a holy, perfect God, and how sinful man may be forgiven and come into your presence. Dear God, even now, as we approach the communion table, Lord Jesus, help us to remember your sinless life. Help us to remember your voluntary death at the cross, and help us to remember and rejoice in your victory over the grave when you rose from the grave and you ascended into heaven where you, in your humanity, have achieved in our realizing the perfect peace forever and ever. It is for glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we approach the table. Amen.